0: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like to to? Um, <laughs> chart music.
1: <laughs> chart music. up. You pop craze youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 69 of chart music. Here I am, I'll need them, and oh look who's over there. Taylor Parks. Yeah, alright. Fucking hell, look over there, it's David Stubbs. I'll do. Oh boys, so good to have you back. And I must admit, I am still massively delighted that we invented a brand new game in part one of this episode. This I believe is gonna set the dinner parties of 2023 Absolutely a light. That game, of course, is pantomime horse. <laughs> Shall we play a few more rounds, chaps, before we get stuck in? Yeah, why not? Why okay. not? Okay. Little and large.
0: Ooh. 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 Uh-huh. Oof. I
2: think Eddie would make Sid go in the front and he'd think that was a really nice gesture, but it was actually going to be a trick. He mm. would like, he'd put a firework up his arse or something. Yeah. No, no, if you put a firework up the arse of someone in front of you in a pantomime horse, I think the joke would be on you, wouldn't
1: it? Pretty much. Yeah. It. I think Sid would really get into the part and do loads of whinnying and throwing his head back while <laughs> Eddie's at the back showing everybody what John Wayne's arse would look like in a pantomime horse with <laughs> <or laughs> deputy dogs and, yeah. and just spoiling it. Okay, moving on ian paisley and jerry adams <laughs> oh uh, i think they i think they might agree
0: a cordial sort of because they've got kind of cordial ian paisley with people like martin yeah. in towards the end so I, I i think they'd have a sort of cordial sort of rotor. you know one time it was mm. paisley one time one time adams mm. yeah. yeah
2: you'd have to end up with a horse with a head at each end <laughs> like uh like Noah and, Nelly's <laughs> and
1: finally Therese bazaar and david van day <laughs> oh you knew that was coming oh there's no way that van day is going to go down
2: <laughs> so i hey, though no, he'd be up front and he'd be like now look you stay there i'm going to show you something about charisma
1: yes yes <laughs> <laughs> all right then pop craze youngsters it is now time to go way back Back to December of 1974. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. (laughs) 20 minutes past five on Friday, December the 27th, 1974. And Top of the Pops, now into its second decade and officially the longest running pop show in the world, is about to broadcast the final episode of a year fraught with myther. A BBC technician strike in the last week of May left the show struggling to cobble together an episode and eventually rammed it with repeat performances and had to cancel its special episode about David Cassidy's farewell to the pop scene. (laughs) And when the strike solidified into a full-on walkout a fortnight later, the show was taken off the air for seven weeks, leaving the pop-crazed youngsters turning on their dad's tellies of a Thursday evening and discovering in extended highlights and punditry from the world cup repeats of dad's army and are you being served could have been worse Could have been, are you being served all the time? Yeah,
0: that's not too bad. I'd have tolerated that.
1: So, as is the style chaps, this episode is part two of Top of the Pops' review of the year, where the winners of 1974 get to stand on the top deck of a bus and be driven around the city of pop, waving at folk and brandishing silverware. We do like these episodes, don't we? Oh, yeah. Obviously, the first part was on Christmas Day, sandwiched between Holiday on Ice and the Queen's Speech, and it was presented by Tony Blackburn and Jingle Nonso B E. Here's what was on it, chaps. You tell me who the winner is in these two episodes. Lonely This Christmas by Mod. Ow. Love Me For A Reason by The Osmonds. Meow. Sad Sweet Dreamer by Sweet Sensation.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Pants People Dressed As Ballet Clowns, For You Won't Find Another Fool Like Me by The New Seekers. Ding dong. (laughs) Gonna make you a star, David Essex. All right. Billy Don't Be a Hero by Paper Lace. Well, sorry, Al. <laughs> have, uh, I'm ignoring you. <laughs> when Will I See You Again by The Three Degrees. <sighs> Everything I Own by Ken Booth. <sighs> you gay pop reggae. <laughs> Waterloo by ABBA. Mm. Hey. G by Charles Aznavour. Give you the days I can't forget. The mm. regret. Mm. Pants people dressed up all posh for you the first, the last, my everything by Barry White. <gasps> <It's fair. sighs> and of course... <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, Merry Christmas, everybody, by Slade. All right. I mean, I think we're getting the better end of the deal with this episode. Yeah. Don't you? Ooh, yeah, yeah. But there's been a price to pay there, because while the Christmas Day episode made some sort of sense with the idea that Tony Blackburn and Jimmy Savile live together and they've invited their pop mates round for a soiree, this episode has pretty much been left to fend for itself, hasn't it? So we yeah. get no audience. We get an airless invite. And, and crucially, no pans people, man. They spunked their pans people quota in one go on Christmas Day for Dads. Yeah. Not right.
0: No, no, no. Unfair to Dads.
1: So, your hosts this episode are... Dave Lee Travis, who spent the year filling in for various weekday DJs on Radio 1 from time to time, while holding down his regular request show spot at 3pm on Sundays and sort of acting as a hairy tinned salmon sandwich, if you will. (laughs) It won't be until 1976 that he holds down a permanent weekday slot, but he's not arsed in the slightest, because he's raking in up to £300 a night, £2,600 in today's Rubbish money from his personal appearances in provincial discos, a fee which has no doubt been boosted by his elevation to the Top of the Pops talent pool in November of 1973. And this is his 13th appearance on Top of the Pops. Ooh. Your other host, Noel Edmonds, who has just completed his first full year in the alpha male role on Radio 1 as the host of The Breakfast Show, which was solidified in August. August of this year, when he was selected to present the week-long BBC One splurge on the Osmonds, which peaked when he joined them to present that week's Top of the Pops. He's been a presenter since July of 1972, and is now part of a talent pool which currently consists of Travis, Jingle Nonsobe, Tony Blackburn and Paul Burnett. Oh, here they are again, happy as can be. All good pals in jolly good company. Uh, There's something about the casual,
2: carefree way that DLT is humming along with the Top of the pop theme tune when we Mm. first see him, before he rolls into his usual nightmarish, humourless humour, babble shtick. Mm. Just seems to radiate pure contempt for the programme and for you and me and his mother. And indirectly... Mm everybody's mother yes Uh, but you know at this point unlike 80s dlt he's not jaded and yawning his way through it he's full of enthusiasm which Mm. on the one hand is terrible but on the other it's still terrible but the, the only thing that makes him less than 100% repulsive here is that he hadn't yet developed that little spider's web of grey hair at mm. the front of his cunt fro, which would, <laughs> you know, break through in about 1978 or 79 and complete mm. the skin-crawling wrongness because he's more disturbing when he's visually coded middle-aged rather than this relative youngster who's overbearing creepiness – could, with excessive charity, be written off as youthful high spirits, you know, mm. you could almost think of him here as just another cunt, you know, and the one sense in which Dave Lee Travis is exceptional is that he's not just another cunt, no. he is toxic mega cunt. Mm. He is the cunt of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Always on, mm. pinching a girl's ass with a sausage sandwich in the other hand, eternally.
1: He's the top. Mm. He's the tip. He's the championship. He's the most tip top. Top, top cunt. Cunt to end all cunts. Close friends get to call him DLT (laughs) but he hasn't got any actually. (laughs) Where do we start with these two and what they're wearing? I mean both of them have come dressed for the occasion. Mm. Edmonds is sporting a black dinner jacket with a massive black bow tie which makes him look like he's being savaged by a bat Uh, and of course as as any pop craze youngster will tell you he always makes an effort when he's on the (laughs) programme. Article in the Daily Mirror last week. It's Natty Noel. (laughs) Noel Edmonds bought a new suit yesterday because tonight he's comparing Top of the Pops. He has a new suit every time he appears on the programme. The kids who watch the show notice these things, he told me. They complain every time I wear the same shirt and tie more than once. With a regular monthly slot on Top of the Pops, Noel buys at least 12 suits a year. I pay about £30. And I prefer the -the off-the-peg three-piece suits because they look very smart, he said. And, yeah, that was borne out by his adverts that were running at the time for Hepworth's tailors with Tony Blackburn, you may recall. Edmonds always went for off-the-peg because of his busy lifestyle, (laughs) uh, while Blackburn opted for made-to-measure because he was particular. But they both paid the same price of £37.50. So there you go. Mm.
2: The way Noel's dressed up here, he looks like Young Musician of the Year, yes, or like Ninth Place. He played W O L D by Harry Chapin on the (laughs) Corongle. It's because he always wore those 70s suits with the big shoulders and wide lapels, which are not tailored for the puny likes of Noel Edmonds. He looks like he's disappearing in a black velvet quicksand here, you know, (laughs) while his mum looks on proudly. I. I think he thought the artificial bigness of those clothes would bulk him up a bit. Mm. But, of course, it works the opposite Mm. way. Of uh, course. He looks like he's standing four feet tall further back from the camera than DLT when actually Mm. they're side by Mm. side I mean I'm a bit of a short ass, and there are photos of me standing next to gigantic bears of men where (laughs) that also seems to be the case but then I don't assume the slick superior master of ceremonies
0: manner of Mm. a Noel Edmonds
1: I remember your tag team with giant haystacks
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you just look at that bow tie I mean I actually thought it was a comedy but I mean it looks like the kind of bow tie clown would wear to another clown's funeral i mean it's just <laughs> it's just ridiculous yeah. and i th- actually genuinely thought oh this is comedy no no i remember this, this isn't comedy it's the 70s you know this, this, mm. this these aren't intended as comedic parodies of uh, no. of the day of its no, moors certainly not
2: did you know he went to the same public school as douglas adams really whose middle name was noel in Ooh. yet another eerie coincidence both of them capable of creating an entire universe out of their own imagination, <laughs> peopled with uh, fabulous otherworldly creations like Zaphod Beeblebrox <laughs> and Mr. Blobby. I realised the other day I've now lived longer than one of those people did mm. and yet achieved so much less than either. <laughs>
1: Travis though, mm. oh. Travis has essentially come as a white gollywog, hasn't
0: yeah. he? <laughs> it's it, yes, it's actually a face. It's, it's, it's like he's, he's in whiteface of some sort. Yeah, it's, yes, you <laughs> feel racially offended. Yeah, you're right. Yeah.
1: If Spa or Finefair made their own brand of marmalade, he'd be on the front of it, mm. wouldn't he <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: different times, definitely. Yeah, yeah.
1: He's wearing an appalling shiny black suit <laughs> with massive silver lapels, and he's teamed that with a dark fuchsia shirt and a white bow. Tie. Hmm. You know those absolutely shit suits that sports personalities wear nowadays? Hmm. Yeah. He's sort of like that. He looks like he's just been drafted in the fourth round by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, <laughs> or he's off to a press conference to pretend to be angry at some other boxer in order to sell some more pay per views. Fucking dreadful tailoring. Mm,
0: mm. I mean I think of all the toxins running through the bloodstream of seventies star that sort of coalesce into a boil on the end of the nose of the seventies. And I think this outfit, <laughs> these glasses, this beard as well, that'd be it.
1: So the obvious question, chaps, we have to return to it. Noel Edmonds Dave Lee Travis Pantomime Horse
0: Yeah, I think these
2: two cunts can sort it out between Uh, themselves. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think they would end up as a hideous push-me-pull-you, straining (laughs) in different directions until their skin burst Mm. and frayed and the kiddies started screaming and crying and the the dads would have to get up on stage and get involved again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just as long as somebody walked on stage and, blazing saddle-style, punched that pantomime (laughs) horse in the face. I could just
0: imagine a sort of thing, you know, a sort of great tussle when Noel Edmonds' head emerging triumphantly out of the top of the horse his head and then being pulled back down in again by Travis and his head popping out and so the long evening wears on. I
2: always wanted to go up to Bernie Clifton when he was on his ostrich. Just walk up to him, punch the ostrich in the face, and they mm. both go down. That would be great. <laughs> anyway, look, allow me a quote from this slim volume here. The Top of the Pop's annual nineteen seventy five. Yes. I e the one that would have been in the shops and stockings right now as this episode went out.
1: Oh, oh, I've actually got that, Taylor, right in front of me now. Top of the Pops Annual 1975. It's got a big white number one on a red background. Yeah. And there's three circular image bits off to the sides of Saville, Noel Edmonds, Tony Blackburn, turning around the back. No DLT on it whatsoever. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And in the middle, a big picture of the Osman family. Yeah. Of course. Which is nice. Well, this particular copy
2: that I've got here is perfectly preserved, but absolutely reeks of somebody's shed which I think <laughs> tells its own rather poignant story. Um, God, yes, so does mine. Anyway, among the features on pop groups, there are also profiles of the top DJs that we yes. as Top of the Pops viewers have come to think of as our extra special friends. Uh, mm. Now, most of these interviews are clustered in one section of the annual, imaginatively titled Top DJs, uh, yes. except for the feature on Jimmy Savile, who oh, yeah. has this kind of... Early medieval king figure has a much bigger (laughs) section all to himself, written in the first person. almost as though he'd bothered to sit down and write it himself rather Mm. than talk down the phone at some hack reporter who's had to go away and assemble this shit into a coherent piece and credit it to Sir Jim. But that's at the start of the annual. That's the very first thing you see when you open it. The typically soothing picture of Savile with the slightly horrifying headline, Jimmy Savile... The daddy of the DJs. Yes. <laughs> <This. laughs> what tool? This fucking tour. Um, <laughs> uh, further in, you get interviews with his serfs, including one with uh, Dave Lee Travis. Oh, yes. Which begins like this. Dave Lee Travis admits it. I'm a complete loony, he says. <laughs> An absolute nutcase. <laughs> I'd do anything for a laugh. Um, And so the article goes on running through his career. It says, Dave spent two and a half years in Bremen, Germany doing his own tv show which pulled in an audience of over 80 million viewers which for those of us who've seen beat club um Mm. specifically travis's constant comedy sex pesting over ushi nurka the main host to whom he was very much second banana in fact just one of Mm. a string of male sidekicks um, and which very visibly makes her extremely uncomfortable Mm. him then going back to england and claiming he had his own show in germany is even more grotesque Uh, but he goes on to talk about it here and he says they thought i was a nutter (laughs) a maniac (laughs) so i then used to do anything at all just to get a laugh
1: well that's interesting teller because as i found out to my cost when i went on a german exchange in 1982 the german for nutter is prostitute (laughs) i called my mate a nutter and all the german teachers just glared at me and i was tucked to one side and informed as to what i'd said right well it says here that in germany he became
2: known as big dave the english nut (laughs) that's what he thought they were saying big dave the english nut uh it's actually a german phrase which sounds very like that but actually translates as I hope his arse falls off so he has to shit through his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, he's got more to say in this interview. He says, um, I'm not just a DJ, I'm a really dedicated all round entertainer. Oh, no! It might sound a bit big-headed to say so, but I know I'm going to be a really big-name entertainer a few years from now. Fuck. Just wait and see. Yeah. I'll have a really monster TV show of my own. Ooh. And indeed, the golden oldie picture show yes. was quite a sensation. <laughs> I mean, do you think, in later years, his co-host on this programme ever read that quote back and chuckled darkly?
1: Oh, his framed in his toy. Toilet making. <laughs> or one of his many toilets no doubt <laughs>
2: <laughs> i love it i got so much terrible pleasure from reading that quote about how Davy travis knows he's going to be a, a top entertainer with a show of his own that might actually be my second favorite quote of all time <laughs> after my mate when i was 15 eating some mushroom stroganoff making a face and saying "Urg, this tastes like spunk I imagine.
0: says <laughs> <laughs> so hastily appended there, yeah.
2: Uh, Noel is also featured at punishing length in the 1975 Top of the Pops annual, if you'll allow me to uh, mm-hmm. quote the words of the great man. Educators, Taylor. He says... Already, I think, I've proven that I'm not just another Tony Blackburn. Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's nice (laughs) for you. I'm sure some of the kids had no comprehension that Gary Glitter could actually sing a song like Happy Birthday until I played it from one of his albums on my radio programme. Oh, no. It's really an excellent piece of music. This is the song Happy Birthday. Not yes, that it's one. about It's about waiting until midnight <laughs> so that a girl turns 16 and is legal so you can then have sex
1: yes. with her. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Oh. lyrics Eleven fifty nine. 59 about time one more minute to go i can hardly wait in this state don't my feelings show all we gotta do me and you see it through when we do what a big surprise i've got for you oh. when you're old enough ha i do my stuff till you beg for more now the time has come have your fun bang you come give me some look out birthday baby here i come you're alone almost grown on your own move a little closer fucking hell this is like sean Ryder writing a song about the day drugs are decriminalized so he can (laughs) take some (laughs) anyway noel in this probing piece (laughs) he got plenty more to say he says there's only one fault with top of the pops it doesn't give me enough time in between the numbers to set up a proper comedy situation. Oh, for you see, fuck's sake. I'm really a frustrated TV comedian, and I'd like to do more comedy on television.
1: God,
2: <laughs> the sadly unnamed writer of this article continues here. It's it's not what you call a combative interview. Um, <laughs> One young girl who was in the audience for Top of the Pops knows just what Noel means. Noel asked her during the show, Do you like surprises? She innocently replied, Yes. He turned away from her, then suddenly turned round and shouted, Boo! (laughs) Everyone in the studio roared with laughter, (laughs) including the girl. That's what Noel means by being a zany character. (sighs) And these are the closing lines of the article. That's your takeaway. And there's the man who actually would end up with a monster TV show Mm. of his own. Mm. Not once, but on numerous occasions. It's funny, isn't it? One... Disordered psychological state, and you end up in a mansion with a helicopter on mm. the roof. Another, only very slightly different, disordered psychological state, and you end up as an unemployable, convicted sex offender. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, no real logic to it, is there? No.
1: Is that the article that mentions right at the top? Um, his single. Yes, it is. Oh, Kirk Houston, <laughs> Alcatraz. Mm. Have you heard it, chaps? I have. Oh, if I'd have yes. played the that to you and said this is a top of the pops presenter you would have thought it was travis wouldn't you mm.
0: I, th- I think probably so yeah. It's, it's, it's weird he sounds like a throat cancer victim
1: he's singing about how horrible alcatraz is and at the end he says well how do you think i know about all this because i'm the governor <laughs> it's like his fantasy isn't it well his wank fantasy <laughs> <laughs> like to be in
2: charge of a men's prison <laughs> they all have to do exactly what i say they all have to bathe in sewage <laughs> Do we know that these two hated each other, by the way? At the time? Yeah, you just assume it, don't you? Partly because there was so much bad blood (laughs) and bitching at Radio 1. And partly because... well, why wouldn't they? Mm. Well, everybody else does. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, neither of them is remotely likeable.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if they did hate each other, my response yeah. is good. Now you know how we feel. Yes. <laughs> now you are both halfway
0: to knowing how we feel.
1: Yeah, at the time I wouldn't know, and I just thought they were brilliant mates. Yeah. I just thought everyone in pop was best mates with each other.
0: I mean, the thing about these two is, at the time, you know, I was a pop kid, and I didn't mind them at all, in fairness, and there wasn't actually a general protest against them from us pop kids because mm. i mean first of all this crap was mercifully brief and they sort of functioned you know as signifiers that top of the pops was on we're seconds away from pop i mean raymond baxter mm. was a far more impressive broadcaster yeah but he signified that tomorrow's world was on you know and for fuck's sake can we get a wriggle on with the items mm. about talking robot waste Indeed.
1: paper baskets and roll on the closing credits <laughs> yeah fuck tomorrow we want now exactly
0: it's like the mr whippy jingle you know it's not like we kids you know we're all hand jiving in the streets <laughs> digging that jingling vibe we just knew that <laughs> ice cream was Imminent. But they delude <laughs> yeah. themselves. People like Travis and Edmund to thinking that somehow they had some sort of mm. autonomous function beyond that, and <laughs> the personally turned out to be right.
1: of your friendly neighbourhood Harry Monster and his colleague Noel
2: Edmonds, welcome to the Christmas edition of Top the Pops. I'd Pop. just like to say that I completely concur with the views that have
1: just been expressed. We've welcome. got to work this together, son. Oh, all right, then. Now, we've got all a host right, of right. golden hit records and the artists with them we do, we on the do. show. We do. So shall we start with... The The Rubettes! Hit with the Pavlovian twang and blare of whole lot of love as the top of the Pops logo flares up in the middle of a Christmas wreath effect which is somewhat ruined by the array of images of this afternoon's bands and artists as they've tried to fit rectangular images into a round space. <laughs> That's replaced by a shot of Travis, seemingly caught unaware at first but quickly rallying and starting to mime the horn bits of the theme tune. He Reminds us that he's the hairy monster And welcomes us to the Christmas top of the pops Before being rudely interrupted by Edmunds in vintage BBC announcer mode After a bit of 15% passive, 85% aggressive banter They hold out their hands in an introductory fashion To welcome the first act on stage The Rubettes with Sugar Baby Love Born in Rill in 1941 and Liverpool in 1943 respectively, Wayne Bickerson and Tony Waddington were members of the Pete Best Four in the mid-60s, who went on to form a songwriting partnership when the band split up. Although they wrote nothing but a heartache for the Flirtations in 1968, the hits eluded them throughout the 60s and they settled into providing filler for the likes of the Brotherhood of Man, Barry Ryan and In Fox. But when Bickerton became the head of A&R for Polydor UK, they began work on a rock and roll musical and realised that one of the songs they'd knocked out, this one, had definite hit potential. After rounding up a collective of musos to knock out some demos, the songwriters initially intended to enter this tune in that year's Song for Europe, but then offered the song to the hottest new mock-and-roll band in the country, Show Waddy Waddy, but they turned it down flat. And after their second choice... Carl Wayne knocked it back. They went back to their demo band and offered it to them on the condition that they formed a band. Only two of them took up the offer, but no matter. A few ring rounds to jobbing musos later, the Rubettes were formed. They were immediately signed to Polydor and the single was put out and it did absolutely fuck all for six weeks despite non-stop badgering of Radio 1 and Robin Nash from Polydor promo chief Tony Bramwell the Beatles' Artie fuffkin. <laughs> but then, on April the 24th, 1974 Robin Nash was informed that his booking of Sparks to perform This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us in the Studio was off because he'd assumed that they were British British only to be told at the last minute that they weren't they hadn't joined the musicians union and they didn't have a promo film or wrote staring aghast at the three minute gap in his episode he called Bramwell and told them if he could get the Rubettes into the studio by 7pm they'd get their break After ringing round, sending taxis out across the country and ordering in 12 sets of flared white suits and matching caps from a boutique on the King's Road because they didn't know the measurements of the band, they made their first ever appearance on the show and a week later Sugar Baby Love entered the charts at number 27. The following week, it soared 25 places to number two. And the week after that, it deposed Waterloo by ABBA to assume total dominance of Pop Mountain. Fucking hell. What a story, Chaps. Yeah, yeah. The power of Top of the Pops, eh? Indeed. Question for the panel and the pop craze youngsters listening What was the first number one single that made you angry about it being there? Because I've got to say it was this one for me. Uh. Which is absolutely mental because there was far worse songs than this. But but even then, as a child, I could rationalise the likes of Long Haired Lover from Liverpool or Welcome Home becoming the most successful song in the country. It just felt right. But I remember seeing this on Top of the Pops and and absolutely hating it because it was too slow and too high-pitched and they all looked like dads. And then I was in the playground one afternoon and I got into a huge argument with a lad there who told me that this had just got to number one and I absolutely refused point blank to believe him and accused him of being a lie because it just couldn't be number one when there was a sweet record knocking about and they were nowhere near as good as a sweet and getting done and having the teacher have a word with me to stop accusing lads of lying (laughs) and then watching Top of the Pops the next day and finding out that he was actually number one Mm. couldn't believe it Mm so fucking angry I'm getting angry now just thinking you, about it i aerated yeah I mean I'm less militant about this song now but god it's still a noise man yeah. for me it was probably um,
0: I think there's maybe a false memory but I think it was Dawn as it Tie Yellow Ribbon Oh. simply because Sweet were kind of roaring at the charts with Hellraiser and yeah. it kept it off and it was just like I thought this is the week it's this is the week this is the week and you know I was listening to Tom Brown or whatever and then number two it's Hellraiser what yeah i was distraught i you know i was crying like a 12 year old french boy you know um <laughs> it was you know it, it really was i was on holiday at the time and i was absolutely you know it it blackened my mood for um, mm. you know a, a good hour or so it really did yeah yeah and i felt thwarted
2: i don't think i ever got angry about it as a kid mm. but so the first record i can remember getting angry about getting to number one is also the last one right which was that record by Lenny Kravitz. Oh, God, yeah. I wish I could fly into the sky (laughs) so very high like a dragonfly. (laughs) Uh, I heard it on an advert for a car, I think, and I burst out laughing, thinking it was just a song they'd written for the advert. Yeah. And thought, is that really the best they could do? Mm. This is absolutely pathetic. People are just going to laugh at this. And then I heard that it was actually a real record by a real musician. Uh. And then I heard it had gone into the British charts at number one. Fuck. And that was the day that I spat on this nation. <laughs> and also then later America, because it also
0: won a Grammy. Uh. I think I was in a state of pretty much perpetual rage about what was number one from 1978 to mm. 1993. But...
1: Uh- <laughs> Anyway, here they are in the studio, you know, celebrating their breakthrough, and, and again it's reminded me of another reason why i was so pissed off with the rubettes at the time the lead singer's got a necklace with alan on it in gold mm. and up to that time i believed i was the only person in the world with that name so looking at him made me feel a bit less original and a bit less special well,
0: that's, that's nice i suppose i mean the geezers on the like the sort of bop shoo waddy waddy detail they're a bit of a chinless bunch and mm. there is some kind of mildly annoying wacky humor going on but when you're in the same oh, yeah. building as noel Edmonds and dave lee travis you know, you're going yeah. to be like, you know, far the less of the criminal party. I mean, they are genuinely having a bit of a laugh. I think they know it's going to be back to sort of lunchtime at the Batley Variety Club in about a year's time.
2: <laughs> yeah, the first thing that always strikes me about this group is that the singer is like trying to be a pin-up mm. and the others are playing comedy ugly. Yes. Yeah. And has there ever been an all-male band who've done that and it worked? Mm. Oh, maybe Sparks in a different way. Can't think of any others. yeah oh yeah well, of course the wurzels <laughs> <laughs> cheap trick oh cheap trick okay oh shawadi Waddy. i mm. suppose mm, yeah um there's a similar sort of overgrown juvenile look on bartram yes uh but i've always been sort of intrigued by alan williams that singer because mm. he's got those sort of strange slavic features mm. and permanent brian jones barry norman eye bags <laughs> yes. there's something a bit unusual about him in the context of the mid 70s i always assumed he must be one of those low-key foreign blokes you used to get in britain when mm. britain was a lot more culturally homogenous you mm. know like he had yugoslavian parents who moved here in 1962 or something mm. you know what i mean he didn't make a big deal out of it mm. but his name's alan williams so the furthest he can have come from is angle <laughs> you, know I mean? you see quite a lot of the other members of the rubettes in this clip as yes, though we they're do. like a collective you know it seems a bit weird we get very well acquainted with the drummer
1: oh yes we learn sort of, that the rubettes yeah. like like too many bands before and after have been afflicted by a bad case of performative drummer
2: yeah mm. yeah he's like a sort of sub asquith mm. he? he's like mr lucas Yes, with Mr. Spooner, depending <laughs> on you know where you stand on that great rivalry, I think fans still duke it out over the definitive Grace Brothers Junior Sales Assistant. Oh man, the, the fights in the Market
1: Square on a Saturday over that. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But yeah, he's got a green electric bow tie That yeah. flashes when he does the spoken word bit And th- there's a lot of fakery on this Because, of course, Williams um, mimes the castrato mm. bit Which was done by Paul Da Vinci Who refused to join the band uh, And would go solo later on this year You must have seen his top of the pops performance Of Your Baby Ain't Your Baby Anymore No, no Oh, <laughs> wait till we get to that on chart music mm fuck me. The thing is,
2: this is actually a pretty good record Ooh. considering what it actually yes, is. Yes, it is. But... There's no actual point in listening to it when you could be listening to something that actually came out of the actual New Jersey in the actual early sixties. Do you know what I mean? It's like buying a seersucker suit that looks okay at a glance, Mm. but it isn't, and will obviously shrink and fade and dissolve as soon as you wash it. But it costs the same as the real thing. Mm. Is that really required? You know, is that the only thing it's got going for it? is that Mm. it's here now and you can take it or leave it you know and i think there's a at least a discussion to be had about you know when so-called credible bands i.e not really people like the rubettes do something that is so closely patterned on something else that it's virtually pastiche Mm. right by which i mean a discussion about whether that's fair enough and then whether anyone should care i remember a friend of mine who really loved big star getting into teenage fan club and being a bit apologetic about right. it, saying I know they're rip-off merchants I just want some more music that sounds like that which yeah, fair enough. when you don't yeah when you don't have the responsibilities of a critic mm. that's understandable you know and it's doubly understandable in that case considering the early big star were in a lot of ways just the teenage fan club of their day <laughs> like completely unoriginal just playing their favorite kind of music that already existed but i think if what you're doing is heartfelt pop songs which are at least aimed towards the emotions you can plausibly argue that there's always room for more of them in any style, mm. you know, you don't necessarily require the shock of the new. Yeah. But when it's music like this, which might be designed to create feelings, but it's not about personal emotional expression, then a very derivative record feels a little bit more like a forgery, mm. you know, because you yeah. feel like if an idea of their own had occurred to them at any point during recording this, uh, they would have excluded it. Mm. Because that would have complicated the song to the detriment of what they were trying to achieve.
0: Clearly, they are... Part of that general thing that's going on at the time, you know, the attempt to sort of replicate the spirit and the style or whatever of, like, I don't know, pre-Beatles music, rock and roll, et cetera, et cetera, because mm. things have kind of slowed up a bit culturally. It's almost like the first postmodern moment in some ways. But at the same time, they are quite 70s in their attire. I mean, you know, they've mm. got their shirt collars are peeping right over their shoulders, you know, so they don't go for the absolute strict sort of teddy boy type, you know, period detail. They don't really bother with that. I mean, it's no. it's a bit... Conceited of them, you know, given that they the, don't take themselves that seriously. So it's a bit conceited to filch the beginning of Twist and Shout at the beginning. Oh, of, God, yeah. As if they're going to represent this new pop cultural era, you know, as if Philip Larkin's going to write Sexual intercourse began in 1974 with the Roubettes because nothing important had happened before, you
1: know. <laughs> 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 they're all in a mixture of the stage togs that they've worn throughout the year. Yeah. And they appear to be performing in front of the giant Iron Man in the Channel 4 eye dance that's just collapsed on the floor in despair. <laughs> <laughs> and what's happened to glam.
2: Yeah. The companion piece for this performance and indeed for the whole of this Christmas Top of the Pops Ooh. is that cheap and not so cheerful British film, the unfortunately titled Never Too Young to Rock. Mm. The word rock there as so often, possibly a euphemism for something. Um, <laughs> made by the same people who made the naively titled Gary Glitter Vehicle Remember Me This Way. (laughs) It's a film that features the rubettes, the Mm. glitter band, mud, Bob Kerr's whoopee band. Right. We talk a lot about the grimy, mildew, damp atmosphere of the mid-70s, but watching Never Too Young to Rock off a VHS rip, all smeary and, and muffled, is like having your head plunge right into that particular outside toilet Mm. all the way up to your knees (laughs) it's barely watchable but it's in that elite class of mid-70s cultural artifacts which wouldn't be believable if you did them as a parody yeah it would seem a bit too on the nose Mm. um with freddie jones as the appropriately named mr Rockbottom driving around in a group detector van which apparently tunes into the modulated frequencies emitted by the pop groups required for the concert <laughs> this concert they're putting together being very important because it's going to be on tv and if for some unspecified reason if it doesn't get Brilliant ratings. Rock and roll is going to be banned from television. That's <laughs> right. the, the plot, such as it is. And of course, this group detector van is basically a converted Second World War army ambulance with the doors rusting off, you know, and a, a shitty multicolored paint job. And the Rubettes' big moment in this film is miming to this track on the back of a lorry that's going slowly down Golders Green Road... when it's obviously just stopped raining. And it's great, to be honest. It shows off whatever is likeable about them... far better than this clip here does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, look, we'll return to that film later in this podcast, I'm sure. But basically, (laughs) if you think that the natural visual accompaniment... to late-period glam rock is the look and feel of a public information film (laughs) with about as many laughs, despite the fact that it's meant to be a comedy, then you must not sleep on this film. No. Or indeed fall asleep, during it which is a hazard but definitely watch it if you can before the last remaining copy known to man is deleted off a hard drive somewhere to make room for more low budget american pornography because there's nothing like it except feeling sick in the cold this is a film whose closing credits include a thank you to ready mix concrete limited Uh, Thank you, that I doubt was ever reciprocated, but one that says it all.
1: So Sugar Baby Love would spend four weeks at number one, giving way to a tune we're going to be subjected to later on. The follow-up, Tonight, got to number 12 for two weeks in August, and they'd round off 1974 with Jukebox Jive, which is currently the Christmas number three, and would spend four non-consecutive weeks there. That's a miles better tune. Mm. After three top 40 hits in 1975, they changed tack and became a proto-smoker, getting to number 40 in September of 1976 with the anti-homophobia song Under One Root, Got to number 10 with Baby I know in March of 1977, but never bothered the charts again. However, there are three versions of the Roubettes still in existence today. Of course there are. Good lord. They should make a film about trying to book all three of them for a festival. <laughs> That yeah, was the robots for there, lad. Oh, my arms. Oh, All the way through there. It's a long yeah. record, isn't it? it? certainly is. We've got it the is. sound for you. John Denver and his song. And what song? No, John Denver Annie's song. It's And a... what song? No, it's... And, <laughs> and... You feel up my Return to a shot of the outstretched forearms of Travis and Edmonds and realise that we have been subjected to a bit... We also get the chance to contemplate how meaty Dave Lee Travis's wrists and hands are. Fucking up. They're like rowing oars, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't like to be slapped across the face or grabbed on the arse by that. Yeah. After some incisive and thoughtful wordplay on the title of the next single, we're finally introduced to Annie's song by John Denver. Born in Roswell, New Mexico in 1943, Henry John Deutschendorf Jr. was an army brat who was given an acoustic guitar by his nonna at the age of 11 and ran away from home at the age of 15 to start a musical career in California but his dad went looking for him and dragged him back and presumably tanned his arse and he would have fucking deserved it as well (laughs) after one year at Texas Tech College in 1963 he dropped out and moved to Los Angeles to begin his music career proper playing open mic sessions in folk clubs changing his name to John Denver and replacing the leader of the Chad Mitchell Trio which changed their name to Denver, Boise and Johnson in 1965 In 1969, he signed to RCA as a solo artist and put out the LP, Rhyme and Reasons. Although it failed to chart, one of the songs on it, Leaving on a Jet Plane, was picked up by Peter, Paul and Mirre and took it to number one in America and number two over here. When RCA told him they weren't ready to fund a tour of America off the back of his debut LP, he decided to hit up towns and cities in the Midwest on his own, turn up unannounced at venues asking for support slots, and then hit up the local radio station and told them he was the writer of Leaving on a Jet Plane, and asked for the chance to play a few songs live and promote his gig, which garnered him a hardcore following. And when he put out his second LP, Poems, Prayers and Promises, in 1971, he landed a number two hit on the Billboard chart with Take Me Home, Country Roads despite a barrage of hits in america which culminated in sunshine on my shoulders getting to number one the uk wouldn't have recognized him if he'd shagged our mams but in 1973 his manager jerry weintraub decided his artist needed his own tv show and convinced the bbc to do it as he knew that british tv didn't cancel series mid through their run like they did in america So, six episodes of the John Denver show Which also featured Pan's people Were put out in the early summer of that year But still no hits Then, earlier this year Denver had a row with his missus one afternoon And went off for a bit of a ski And according to legend He was so pumped with adrenaline after going downhill really fast on some massive sucker sticks that he wrote this song in 10 minutes while he was on the ski lift back and decided to name it after his missus presumably because you fill up my senses sounded a bit druggy (laughs) in mid-august when it had already been and gone as the billboard number one and his song entered the chart at number 37 and started a two-month pull up the charts until it knocked kung fu fighting by Col Douglas off number one and here is a clip of him on some American TV show to commemorate that very thing. Hmm. Boys we touched upon this song when it was done by James Galway's Flute of VD in Chant Music 54 but here's the original. Yeah. I think you know say there's this ongoing raging
0: debate about whether up and coming flautists or copyright Abigail's party James Galway's version is better than Denver's. and I, I'm in Camp Galway I think on the grounds of mellifluousness So he's got a sort of slightly sort of disagreeable war will as Denver. You know, you've got the geezers working have to work pretty hard on that mandolin to sort of take the edge off But look at this cunt.
2: You know, (laughs) the milky bars may well be on him... but but he's the only one eating them sideways because john denver's (laughs) wide mouth frog look it really unsettles me Mm. right he looks like a rubber ball that someone's drawn a face on and sliced almost in half and now they're (laughs) squeezing the sides to make it talk (laughs) (laughs) he looks like if his doctor told him to open his mouth and say, ah, his head would split in half and fold back over on itself (laughs) and his glasses would slide off at the back and hit the ground. Uh, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if that meant that he then stumbled myopically, arms held out in front of him, off the edge of the treehouse <laughs> into a, a paddling pool full of
0: crabs. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, he is,
1: he is pretty much zippy in a wig and glasses, isn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually strangely cybernautic, really. There's a bit of a commander data vibe about him. It's as if his lips yeah, are made yeah. from the same material as his face, and his hair <laughs> looks weirdly silvery, like it's some sort of fine. You know, synthetic fabric that's been generated by a microchip yeah. in his skull. It's like a... bleep, the space boy. Yeah. yeah very odd very odd indeed mm. what surprises me i mean is the story of like how it's composed you know i mean it's sort of at breakneck speed because this is one of those breather songs you know one song in we have to have a breather <laughs> yeah piss break well definitely piss break because it doesn't have any velocity about it at all back then when i was 12 you know, my bottom lines were fast is good and slow is bad mm. and the weird thing is retrospectively actually pretty much all of the slow stuff was poor i, I reckon mm. it's not like guys and gals are one and only nick drake was popping up in 1974 <laughs> yes. i mean you know you did have have exceptions i did like i'm not in love by 10 cc and i admit mm. you know that like the carpenters had a very mysterious effect on me but generally the slow numbers to me they weren't just a change of pace. They just seem deliberately, consciously designed to dampen down the teenage oh, yeah. rampage, you know, to deny yes. the velocity of youth and exuberance and try and reassert the timid innovation of, you know, the pre-rock and roll years. You know, it's anti-funk, yeah. anti-rock, anti-disco, anti-electronic and it's willfully, maliciously tepid and twee.
1: Yeah, at this point John Denver, is he, pretty much a one-man Osmonds for the mums and dads, isn't it? He? Yeah. He's living that American heartland life. He's clearly not going about thinking is summer and he's obviously real and not a bent cunt Yeah, ticks all those boxes and to be honest with you chaps I never minded John Denver because as the 70s went on it was obvious that he was best mates with the Muppets (laughs) because you know they'd all go round his house for a bounce around on his grandma's feather bed and as far as I know the Muppets don't knock about with Bellens
2: (laughs) Al the reason he was mates with the Muppets is that he shared their physiognomy (laughs) but they accepted him as one of their own (laughs) (laughs) i gotta be honest i i got no time for this colorado beetle (laughs) (laughs) it must be a funny place colorado what it does to people right whether it's hunter s thompson pouring drugs into his bald head and then blowing it to pieces when he Mm. got bored or the empty air of aspen colorado the american switzerland yeah Except that Aspen actually has a, a long-forgotten countercultural history, which makes that even worse. Appropriately enough, for a man like this, who's essentially a cosy, conservative entertainer, mm. clinging onto the hippie bandwagon, yeah. like Frank Spencer on roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> they just legalised magic mushrooms in Colorado, they? apparently. Yeah, which I suppose is one way to make John Denver seem interesting (laughs) don't like him he's got a a capo on his guitar at the first fret right which always just seems like cheating really (laughs) just shunt the song into some freaky brass band key you know rather than just singing a semitone lower like a man you know and also let's face it even within the unholy genre of Western shirts, this is a bad <laughs> Oh, one. yes. Like, it looks like he's wearing a denim bib over an old lady's nighty.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, you know, he, he had D. Snyder's back at the PMRC earrings. He did loads of benefits off his own back. Did one in Chernobyl a couple of years after the disaster there. He was on the waiting list to get on the space shuttle before the Challenger disaster fucked all that. And uh, yeah. he thought Ronald Reagan was a cunt. Mm. Which, I mean, it's a pretty yeah. low bar. Yeah, I mean, But you've got, got to take your hat off to him. Yeah. Mm.
2: There's just something really unpleasant about this song. I hate the, the emotional build as the song mm. goes on. The like, way it keeps getting bigger and more history on it, swelling up like a mm. boil, you know. It's just a grotesque spectacle of this wide-beaked eagle rising <laughs> higher and higher on the ghastly thermals of Ooh. his own <laughs> wind. It's horrible to witness. But this was always going to happen in the 70s once the mo of the singer songwriter moved on from poetry and social comment to relentless self-examination the deeper people get into that the drippier and whinier Mm. they're Mm. going to get because ultimately that's what's inside all of us right so we were drowning in this stuff you know people opening their hearts to Mm. the world this is, there's something about that that's slightly dangerous. <laughs> like <laughs> a night out in Sheffield. Yes. <laughs> because it doesn't work as culture, just exposing mm. your soul. Ultimately, it's like blokes exposing their bollocks. <laughs> you know, they might appreciate the fresh air but nobody else wants to see them (laughs) and when one person does it at least it's a novelty but when you live in a world where everyone's running around with their Mm. bollocks out you're not sat there applauding everyone's bravery and vulnerability you're just sick of seeing ugly bollocks all over the place and it's the same with the indistinguishably basic emotions of unexceptional troubadours you end up thinking all right, mate, it's your bollocks. We've all got them, except the ladies.
1: Please look at my bollocks. (laughs) But
2: most of us don't even find our own particularly interesting. Oh, no. To get up on a stage every night and just pull out your bollocks Mm. and expect applause, all I can say is, hey, Denver zip it (laughs) i I only wish we could zip up his mouth but Mm. sadly his physical resemblance to zippy doesn't extend as far as the
0: useful i mean it's it's true uh, this whole business about soulfulness people think it's an inherent virtue to be soulful but you know most people have got mediocre souls and uh denver is obviously no exception Mm.
2: yeah yeah yeah, it's the, he's the pioneer of Ed Sheeranism. Mm. Really. You know, like stripping down a potentially interesting and lively and affecting musical form to its its barest and least emotionally complex and most dumbly commercial elements. And then presenting those in a context of reassuring mediocrity mm. and making millions. And not doing that out of cynicism or financial ambition but as a genuine, perfectly natural expression of your personal mediocrity. Mm-hmm. And if you do that slickly, you can never go wrong with it yeah. from a career point of view because there's always going to be loads of people who will
0: relate to that and feel very comfortable Yeah, with Yeah, that. absolutely. That's that's it. And um, you say he wrote it
1: in 10 minutes, I mean, it took you that long. <laughs> But yeah, the wedding song of 1974. If you had uh, older cousins or aunties or whatever who were getting married in 1974, you had to sit there in your horrible tiny three-piece suit with a bow tie on a bit of elastic and (laughs) be made to listen to this without even being able to touch the buffet and it just wasn't fair. (laughs) I bet the Wilkins in the family, when they got married, I bet this got played. (laughs) Still, I'm glad I saw this clip.
2: By which I mean, I'm glad I saw it. As opposed to, I'm still seeing it.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Annie's song would spend one week at number one, giving way to Sad Sweet Dreamer by Sweet Sensation. The follow-up, Back Home Again, failed to chart, and this remains his only sniff of the British charty arse as a solo artist. Although his collaboration with Placido Domingo on Perhaps Love got to number 46 for three weeks in late 1981, early 1982. I can't believe that. Only one hit? Yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Sadly, Denver and Annie got divorced in 1982, when the relationship went from her filling up his senses to getting on his tits. <laughs> it led to a massive row over alimony, which culminated in Denver taking a chainsaw into the house and cutting their marital bed in half. <laughs> and he was killed in a plane crash in 1997. Yeah. And of course the song lives on in Britain Thanks to the supporters of Sheffield United Who adopted the lyrics to read You fill up my senses Like a gallon of magnet Like a packet of woodbines Like a good pinch of snuff Like a night out in Sheffield (laughs) Like a greasy chip butter Mm. Oh Sheffield United Come thrill me
0: again You fill up my senses
1: Oh, fantastic. That, of course, is the sound of John Denver. That long time, he finally made it to the top. And the story, all about Annie, who, of course, is his wife. Lovely sounds of Annie's song. 74, a great year for Alvin Stardust. He's here on Top of the Pops with his jealous mind. Who has clearly dropped the British accent he had in the 1972 Christmas show? Goes into his awful Northern accent as he comes out of Annie's song, and then introduces a man who's had a great 1974, Alvin Stardust with my jealous mind.
2: Yeah, Noel here, the way he says, uh, Alvin Stardust with his jealous mind he's always trying to work the title into a sentence mm. very awkwardly and i hate mm. that when anybody does it most of all when it's Noel, just because of the creak yeah. of it and he does it all the time he's like oh, this is donna summer and she feels some love I mean, oh, this is can <laughs> and they want some more it's a petty <clears throat> peeve but to me it's excruciating and half the time it doesn't even fit with the actual lyrics of the song. It's like, here's uh, Chris and he is the lady in red.
0: <laughs> Edmunds, it's just one of those people that thinks that accents, doing voices in itself, denotes you know, humour, you don't have to try any harder than that.
1: We last chanced upon the king of the Mansfield Delta in chart music number three, <laughs> when he took my chew to number two in December of 1973. This is the follow-up, but it's also the first Alvin Stardust single which the former Bernard Jewry has actually sung on, instead of having to mime to the vocals of Pete Shelley, who has settled for just writing and producing from here on in. It entered the charts at number 22 in the middle of March, then soared 19 places to number 3 and a fortnight later, it knocked Devilgate Drive off the top spot. And here's Alvin and his mates returning for an encore performance. Oh, Alvin, you're always welcome on Chart Music, Doc. I'd really have to ask, you know, is Shaking Stevens Shaking Alvin? Really? I don't think Stevens comes anywhere close to the majesty of Alvin Stardust. I, I, I agree. It's weird because Alvin Stardust has basically got to be the Alvin Stardust in My Cuckoo, which was actually somebody else in Tyler. Mm. He's trapped in this role, but oh, what a role! And he mm. plays it so well. I mean, it's
0: fair to say that he said ninety-nine point nine nine percent of what he had to say in My Cuckoo. But even mm. so, you know, he's he's got that kind of you know, Ian McShane vibe about him that's very pleasing. Mm, of course, very much <laughs> so. And of course, the glove lives on in the Rock Expert as well. You know, So yes. you know, we cannot forget definitely. Yeah,
1: and this is one of the great forgotten number ones of the seventies, isn't it? Yeah. You know, as we pointed out in that episode of Charm Music, everyone assumes that My Cuckoo Choo was his biggest hit, but no, it's not. It's this.
2: Yeah. yeah, and this record must have come as a bit of a shock to his fans. Mm. Like they'd heard My Cuckoo, Choo and they thought they had this guy pinned down. Yes. Yeah. Well, forget that.
1: <laughs> but this is how you bring rock and roll into the 70s isn't it you know screaming guitar meaty drums and a front man who's clearly too old for this sort of thing having a moody cavort he's yeah. mm. fucking brilliant
2: man yes
1: as before he's in his all black leather rig out with matching gloves and a big chunky ring and his pompadour has been puffed out even more and his sideburns are even beefier the, the overall look is that he's being skull fucked by a baby chimpanzee isn't it mm. <laughs> bummer chimp
0: <laughs>
1: imagine coming home from school one day and you open the door and your Ted Dad's in the living room cosplaying as Diana Rick. <laughs> this is the look, isn't it? Yeah.
2: yeah. It is great. It's like, his hair is worth talking about here. Though. Oh, I mean, talk he's away. Got, he got lockdown hair, basically, mm. but it's like a lot of people in the seventies who wanted to recall the styles of the fifties, but couldn't quite bear to cut their hair off at it, the back. Yeah, which I think is really the origin of the mullet. Yes, right? like the Fonz in the latest series of Happy Days, or brian ferry when he quiffed it up in the mm. i think it's what bowie was trying to do with the ziggy stardust haircut yeah which is kind of the og mullet yes you know, right? which is stand it on end for rock and roll But without being so hopelessly square as to leave your collar visible. Mm. So you get this terrible halfway house. You'd see a lot of 70s guys not fully committing to the quiff because they'd been growing out their hair since 1964 (laughs) and they just couldn't bear to chop it off. And also I think they were possibly worried that someone would see them from the back and think that they had a short back and sides like hung up old Mr. Normal. Mm. So you end up with this half and half which really combines the worst of both you know yeah or it's for weekend rockers you want to have the long floppy air in the week for urban camouflage and then just quiff it up on special occasions no 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 this lack of commitment has a cost mm. and the cost is you're gonna look shit
0: it's mm. kind of yeah it's it's sort of a hybrid it's like it's which, like the um yeah the sethifties <laughs> what are you going on about Dave like the, the 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 you got the Aventies you? the
1: think, yeah. fifties, surely <laughs> well you could have that as well yeah yeah,
2: yeah. I love his uh, giallo gloves though mm. like a kinky sexualised 1970s Italian murderer yes. whose identity is concealed for most of the film you just get a POV shot of his strangling hands mm. and he, probably in the last scene he'll turn out to be an old lady or a dwarf <laughs> or the main young female protagonist who somehow survived the murder spree hey you didn't expect uh, that and it doesn't need to make sense no i've actually got a pair of black leather gloves a bit like this and it's funny because oh. if i wear them with a suit or a nice leather jacket i look like an italian murderer right but if I wear them with a zipped-up Parker and jeans, I look like an ageing rock star who owns a helicopter. <laughs> I like hmm. both of them.
1: But the main difference between the performance of My Cuckoo and this one is that his band have changed. You know, gone are the egg and chippers in the scoop neck pink T-shirts, and in their place are younger lads in less durable and luxuriant black rig-outs. Yeah. Looks good. Yeah.
0: The thing yeah. I think there's a sort of a theme actually running throughout this episode of like this sort of the backing musician, stroke session musician, whatever, kind of just having a bit of a laugh really they're just strumming away on these bog basic piss easy chords you know they, they mm. probably could do a note for note of richie blackmore on sweet child of mine if they've been asked to but you know this is mm. this is the gig that they get you know and I mean, you think that like in a way you know people talk about post-punk and the intensity of post-punk and i think that comes from the fact that the players are having to concentrate furiously on getting every change right you know but you know mm. these these guys they can just swish away or grin or even play cake mid-song you know but there's kind of yeah. a vibe running through this. It's a very end-of-term feel, is Very end-of-term, it? and it's almost like a cultural yeah, end-of-term. should term.
1: have played Crossfire yeah,
0: while yeah, Alvin was carrying it, yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's got a cultural end-of-term feel as well. Yeah. Although
2: Alvin does come really close to clonking the keyboard player in the teeth with oh. that mic stand. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. He does a little comedy jab. Mm. <laughs> just
1: look how skilled Alvin is. What, what mic standsmanship. You know, there's yeah. none of this oh, Ponzi, yeah. Freddie Mercury, Arthur Stan bollocks. He just sees this chunky mic standing he just hoiks it up and then points it at the camera and twirls it and then he holds it in one gloved fist so he can point at his jealous mind (laughs) then he uses it as a claw to ensnare his pianist like he's trying to win him in a fairground (laughs) and once again that pianist is hunched over awkwardly and not deploying the alexander technique and is therefore paying for it right now yeah yeah. but fucking hell worth the price i think Hmm. Hmm. I think maybe mm. the
2: the keyboard player's being punished for having his white underpants sticking out the top of his mm. black ice skater bell bottoms yeah. at the back, which lets the side down a bit. Although, actually, mm. I looked closely. It might not be that. might actually just be his skin. Um, yes. So he is one of those unhealthy-looking 70s blokes. Even with that... A helmet of blonde hair that makes him look mm. like he's trying to save his sweetheart from Matthew
1: Hopkins. <laughs> but no, to my mind, this is a fucking tune. Yes. Uh, and w- what a welcome relief from the last two songs we've had. Mm. This episode has officially begun here with Alvin. Mm.
2: Yes, Christmas has officially begun.
1: Mm. This, of course, Chaps, is taken from his debut LP, The Untouchable, which came out late last year. And it's inspired me to turn to a book which is currently residing in bedrooms right across the country, the 1975 Music Star Annual. uh. As always, the cover delivers a snapshot of the stars of the day. So we get Donny Osmond, Noddy Holder, Elton John, Susie Quattro, David Cassidy, and Gary Glitter. But inside is a penetrating interview with Alvin, mm. which I'd like to share with you right now. Headline How to Touch Mr. Untouchable. <laughs> I am the untouchable No one is allowed to get close to me Not yet Alvin told us Putting his feet upon the desk in his manager's office And showing off his leather boots You see I even wear gloves That means that no one can touch me Even if they want to Not my skin Or the real me But why should he be so distant Especially from the people who love him I am a star. I love my fans. I love everyone around me. I love making music. I love my family. Just because I don't let anyone come too close doesn't mean I don't love them. But for the moment it is very important to me that I stay apart. I don't want to reveal anything about myself right away. I want to keep a few secrets for a rainy day. Anybody and everybody who really loves me must understand that. In time, you will be able to touch me. But I never want to be the same way as some of the stars. I think there are some who are truly distant from their fans. It's all outward show and nothing in the heart. With me, it's the other way round I have a lot in my heart For all my fans out there who are reading this I want you to know that I love you And I would do anything for you (laughs) I'll be faithful to you Will you be for me? (laughs) Very naturalistic, that,
0: yeah. I can definitely.
1: Round about this time, he'd do interviews with the music press, particularly the serious music press, flanked by two massive henchmen who would wag fingers and tap on shoulders and look menacingly if the, the journo asked a question that Alvin didn't Ooh. like. <laughs> I
0: don't think that's the true Alvin. No. Also, we've got to remember that he's responsible for a generation of city kids not being flattened like roadkill, you know? It's yes, you you know.
1: that's how you get to touch Alvin. Absolutely. Just by legging it across a road. Yeah, again.
0: yeah, yeah. I could have done with Alvin Starr back in 1969 you know i got run over you know i was out of my tiny oh, mind i had been sent out by my mum yeah. you know, to buy echo margarine with a sixpence and cross the busy road didn't <laughs> look right didn't look left and um you know i got walloped by this green cortina and uh my life saved by a, a sort of um a grassy verge um yeah Ooh. so there you
1: go see swings and roundabouts jfk and <laughs> <Yep>. you david
0: <laughs>
2: the thing is more than anything else and this may not be totally obvious to modern day viewers. It may require mm. expert vision, which is what we're here for, and oh, yes. why we're in the big bucks. But this is pure north country steam rising mm. off the t v screen right yes. This is an authentic expression of sex under Artex or <laughs> at least of a, a bit of digital manipulation in a steamed up Morris marina with a handbrake mm. on near some chimneys or a colliery <laughs> wheel it's not romantic but it's no. sex right and because people in those days had to work for their sex in ways that the youth don't really understand now because nowadays mm. it may be as hard as ever to find anyone prepared to have sex with you certainly for <laughs> blokes but other than that basic obstacle most of the other barriers have been cleared away metaphorically and physically right like i mean in Mm. spiritual terms most people have now been cleansed of that spurious christian hangover faux morality and that Mm. deeply misogynistic taliban-esque concept of honor you know and Mm. to a great extent they've left behind the terror of pregnancy and also, physically, people are now less likely to be battling their way through layers of two-inch-thick clothing and huge armoured undergarments <laughs> from sternum <laughs> to knee, you know, with tights over them. And all the concomitant <laughs> incubated yeast infections and <laughs> forests of musty pubic hair, mm. you know. The unwashed mm. British slime, mm. you know, just the the thug rising off foul-smelling, undeodorized unmaintained bodies you know and (laughs) merry christmas everyone (laughs) people so protected by their society from any kind of useful sex education or visual representation of sexual contact they literally don't know what to do right Mm. and all these things still live on here and there but nowadays they're not an electrified ring fence around non-marital sexual relationships or the accumulation of sexual experience for mutual pleasure and personal growth so at least that stuff is less fraught these days but it's starting to make british people almost blasé in the continental fashion whereas Mm. at this point in modern british history if you were an ordinary person in an ordinary town and you wanted sex you had to work for it not just locating and communicating with a prospective sexual partner the actual Practical physical act was like an assault course, not just for the body, but also for the straining libido, like tested mm. to its limit. And it was only starvation and deranged hunger um the the sexual tunnel vision that resulted from that which allowed anyone to ever get through it i think if you put mm. a modern person in a 1970s sexual situation they'd be so turned off they'd cut their losses and just go on for some toast i think <laughs> and it's hard to explain to people especially if they've grown up in a universe of porn hub and Mm -hmm. Doja Cat and articles about fetish clubs in the lifestyle section of the Sunday Telegraph you know (laughs) but Despite how funny and good natured and showbiz this top of the pops performance obviously is, yeah. at the time it would have looked almost too hot to touch. Mm. Because this was a country where, as late as the mid 1950s, lest we forget, the Home Secretary was prosecuting seaside postcards for obscenity. Yeah. <laughs> like seafront sweet shop proprietors bucket and spade shop proprietors (laughs) were arrested as pornographers for selling them (laughs) and the unspeakable postcards themselves would be taken away and literally burnt in government furnaces (laughs) Uh, the ashes would then be shoveled out and dumped in the same pile as the ashes of all those impounded copies of Ulysses Mm. and the Decameron and Mole Flanders and death war bobby socks by hank jansen you know (laughs) all of which were regularly set alight by our spotless moral overlords in order to save our souls from corruption and literally the only thing that stopped those mass book burnings was the clean air act which meant they had to start (laughs) shredding them instead (laughs) and in what was basically still that country this was practically hardcore pornography Mm. you know in 1974 A lot of men, or at least men who were not fortunate enough to be in the Rolling Stones, would have to gulp and run a finger around the inside of their shirt collar Mm -hmm. at the slightest glimpse of cellulite, you know, Mm -hmm. or the gust of wind up a miniskirt provided them with a, a quick flash of old cotton drawers sagging around the backside blokes would just spontaneously ejaculate you know mm. and remember this also is only a couple of decades after alvin's fellow nottinghamshire legend d.h. lawrence yes. having been forced to relocate to italy was having all his letters to his british publishers opened by the home office in their ongoing attempt to silence and suppress the honesty of his otherwise unremarkable writing mm. to the extent of at one point trying to put pressure on his baffled parisian publishers not to publish his work in french lest it creep back across the channel to deprave and corrupt the bilingual this is where we were as a country right and this 1974 this is a time when local councils which were always cobweb covens of weirdos and crusty old misfits as they still are Mm. had de facto control over cinema censorship at the local level and would exercise that control so enthusiastically that according to James Furman the former head of the British Board of Film Classification oh, yes. at this time West Yorkshire was the most heavily censored region in the English speaking world right. including apartheid South it Africa fuck. and meanwhile <laughs> Mary Whitehouse and oh cohorts were were insisting that despite all this we were all submerged in filth and mm. these laws needed to be further tightened up very severely at the cost or as they would see at the benefit of turning a historically lewd and vicious country into a silent fascist theocracy as if that were britain's natural state and everything else was a perversion mm. and In this very year, 1974, the police had seized more about the language of love, which was an only mildly exploitative Swedish sex education film, which had been passed with an X certificate by the GLC, but which the police independently decided to seize and prosecute as an obscene article after two plain clothes policemen went to see it in a west end cinema despite being told as they went in by the shuddering old woman in the ticket office (laughs) i don't know why you want to see that film it's just sex 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 (laughs) she even puts it in her mouth Uh, but this determination to keep britain in a state of arrested development sexually and psychologically and to close off all those avenues of self-expression and that connection with our own essential humanity and to deny british people by law the opportunity to understand that sex is the only kind of everyday pleasure which doesn't ultimately feel empty and temporary and worthless in the face of crushing capitalist routine and Does make almost any life seem worth living and crucially does show up the hypocritical morals of the old british establishment as twisted and dangerous and ultimately evil that determination to deny us all of that was so great and for various reasons considered so important and such a high priority that cases like that were rushed before the courts while actual sex crimes and large-scale sexual abuse were frequently not prosecuted at all yeah and in a lot of cases offenders were protected from prosecution to preserve the spotless image of the british establishment so that it could continue to moralize Mm. and forbid and in this context alvin stardust attempts (laughs) to do authentic raunch english style with only the flimsiest sheath of humor Mm. and silly bugger pantomime are really something and yeah. obviously no cultural commentator at the time looked at this and thought fuck you know what we've got here is a poptastic reincarnation of dh Lawrence." <laughs> and we would laugh if they had. because that's stupid mm. but it's not quite the stupidest thing you could say about alvin stardust it yeah. really isn't yeah. and on these grounds I also have new respect for Lisa Goddard.
0: <laughs> you know what you could have done with, I suppose, at this stage, is for Alvin Stardust to have sort of fronted a campaign for the sexual highway code. Mm, <laughs> Going into yes. bedrooms, hey, when I was doing it wrong. Are you out of your tiny mind?
2: Yeah. <laughs> just walking in. Yep. You've like you all those 70s bedrooms <laughs> all done out in Brentford nylon. <laughs> yes. and flock, all those big coffin wardrobes. <laughs> <Definitely. laughs>
1: the door just flies open. Hey. You. Yes, Point. point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah sixpence is Elvis fuck it he really set the template didn't he oh yeah because isn't this the year Taylor that Eli Culberson came over from America oh and pretended to be Elvis in Heathrow Airport oh, god and went on lift off with Shay and performed the most obscene Elvis impersonation ever yes. with some fucking girl guide sitting at his feet. Yes, oh fucking oh, hell. Oh man, you must see that clip, Pop Crazy Youngsters, it's incredible. <laughs> oh yeah, put
2: yeah video playlist.
1: So, Jealous Mind would spend one week at the top deposed by Billy Don't Be a Hero by Lace. Fucking hell, Nottinghamshire, the cradle of pop. <laughs> the follow up, Red Dress would get to number seven in May, you UUU made it to number 6 in September and he'd finish off his most prolific year with Tell Me Why becoming this week's number 16. Sadly diminishing returns set in rapidly in 1975 and the wheel tappers and shunters circuit beckoned but he'd roar back in the early 80s with 3 top 10 hits and he died in 2014 at the age of 72. I wish I could have interviewed Alvin Stardust Oh. Mm. Have you seen that massive long interview yeah. with um, someone from Cherry Red Records on YouTube? It's fucking brilliant. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's just captivating. Oh, he's such a nice bloke. my, mm. my,
0: just mine. On my, just mine
1: for you there and jealous Mind. well at this point in the proceedings oh forgive this by the way we decided as it's sort of christmas that we'd have it in stereo the other speakers in the kitchen where are you this is george McRae. Rock rocky baby Travis, on his own, holds up two microphones and you already get the feeling that a bit is being deployed, which he wastes time on when he should be introducing the next act, which he finally does when he puts on that American disco voice he started to do round about this time and throws us into Rock Your Baby by George McRae. Born in West Palm Beach, Florida in 1944, George McRae formed the group The Jiving Jets in his late teens before joining the Navy in 1963. Four years later when he came out, he formed a duo with his wife Gwen and when she landed a solo record deal, he acted as her manager while keeping his hand in on session singing and club dates. Earlier this year, McRae was on the verge of chucking in the music business when he was approached by Harry Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band, who had written a song that was out of his range and was offering it to Gwen. On the day of the recording, however, Gwen was running late, so Casey asked George to have a go. And by the time Gwen had arrived, the single was already in the can and her husband suddenly had a solo career. With the single rocketing up the Billboard chart, it entered our chart in the last week of June then. 30 places to number 15, then bounded up to number 4 the week after that, then grabbed hold of She by Charles Aznavour and told it to fuck off out of the number 1 position. And here is the man himself. And chaps, after crossing the Atlantic and freezing his bollocks off in this frigid husk of an island so close to Christmas, how do the BBC treat him? Like shit. (laughs) Not only is he having to perform on a set that's been encrusted with big emerald pyramids which makes him look like he's been shrunk down and been imprisoned in a quality street tin by someone who likes everything bar the green triangles but the opening sequence is george saying sexy mama or some such then a christmas cracker which pans up to a turkey carcass with some holly on the top and a carving knife rammed into it mm. which has been placed off to the side of him and he's expected to sing in front of it mm. why why why? Mm. I asked. Yeah. Mm.
2: yeah that turkey with a carving knife in it, like it's had a visit from Alvin Stardust. <laughs> in a POV shot dubbed with heavy breathing mm. and Italian prog <laughs> rock. Yeah. <laughs> There's a load of people listening to this, laughing, and all the others going, What is Italian prog rock? What's mm. he on about? I don't know. Yeah, we'll go and listen to Goblin. It's like English prog rock with better food, <laughs> but yeah, they haven't really been asked to turn the studio into a, a winter wonderland.
1: <laughs> First, I'm assuming this is a callback to the previous episode, hmm. and this is what's been left over after Mud and David Essex have had a go at it. Yeah, or
0: yeah. well, somebody's just not bothered to clear the stage properly, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I find it massively disrespectful. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, George would be looking at this, going, "Oh, are you calling me a turker? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for George Mac. McCre- immediately mm. just because the fucking turkeys there but also I- I've got a feel for the poor bastard because he must have been walking on eggshells all year with his missus mm. and this performance surely puts the tin lid on it you can imagine him I'm saying oh by the way Gwen uh, I'm not going to be around to help you eat Christmas shopping because I've got to go to London to do that song that you should have had mm. but you were late remember <laughs> you know that song that got to number one in America Britain <laughs> Canada Austria Belgium Holland <laughs> Germany <laughs> Italy North Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. See you on Christmas Eve, Doc.
0: It's great. I like it now. I liked it at the time. Mm. It's just the effortless superiority. I mean, it was something like this. It's like Pele coming up against Terry Darricot or something. Mm.
2: Although... In this particular version of rock baby well yes yes uh, there is that yeah
1: yeah i mean it's, it's famous for being one of the first songs to employ a drum machine but not in this version <laughs>
2: <laughs> but this is the top of the pops orchestra in mid d evolution mm. like we've seen that they went on what would now be called a journey yes from backing stevie wonder and the jackson five and keeping and, up with them yeah not disgracing themselves to Just a few years later, essentially just... Randomly honking and squawking while Denise Williams was trying to sing a God song. Yes, and I suppose this is sort of halfway through that transformation. Mm. You know, sort of hovering a little above Butlin's standard. Yes, you know. I mean it's not as bad as their attempts to play Jamaican music. No, as seen <laughs> on me. any top of the Pots performance by a solo reggae singer, mm. where the backing is not so much Sly and Robbie as Ray and Nobby, um, <laughs> because they don't understand. How in reggae music, feeling is conveyed through the details of timing and inflection. And if you muff that, you're really going to sound like a BBC studio band reading charts under a big clock mm. in a room painted hospital green, turning <laughs> reggae into a variety show umpar. Like you know that sound, right? Yes. When two ronnies clash. Mm. Or, no, no wait, 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 wait. Better one, better one l-e scratch perry um, <laughs> and although soul music was never exactly their friend either no i think they'd have had much worse problems if soul music was still otis redding and wilson pickett oh, and god. stuff like that because like the stack sound works the same way as reggae in terms of the playing um mm. they really would have slaughtered those records beyond all recognition oh god But at least by this point, American soul music has a sort of slickness and a smooth line to it. Mm. So if you play in time and you get the notes right, even if you do sound cabaret sloppy, at worst, you're going to come across as hacks rather than vandals, although it's a close call on this one because... Obviously, the original backing track is so exquisite. Mm. And that's the main point of the record. And obviously, this sounds horrible compared to that. Mm. But it's just, you know... Unlike them doing Uptown Top Ranking or, or Sideshow by Barry oh. Biggs, they don't turn a great record into a terrible record. Mm. They can only downgrade it to a much mm. less good record. Yes. you Because yeah. even without that magical rolling feel that you get on the real Rock Your Baby, just the notes and the arrangement and the singing are enough on their own to still sound good. Just not in the same way. I... It doesn't sound sexy, which is a bit of a shame, considering it's a record about sex. Mm. This is the same record, but as an elderly virgin, <laughs> with those those rim shots going all the way mm. through it, going mm. click, 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 like a cane on the pavement outside Mr Harper's The Fishmonger yes. at 8.30am on a Wednesday <laughs> picking up a bit of salmon for the cat. <laughs>
0: I mean, obviously, this is embryonic disco, I guess, 74. Yes. And there's beginning and it's perhaps one of the first instances of a clash between like the machinery disco increasingly involves machinery and in this instance like the drum machine and the tension between that and like the musicians union and you know TV studio orchestras Uh, the culmination Mm. for me of that is um, There's footage somewhere of like Donna Summer doing I Feel Love. And of course, they haven't got yeah. the kind of Marauder back in. They've just got this kind of TV series audience sawing furiously away on their violins to kind of simulate that kind of sequencer yeah. effect. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it it's not great.
1: He wasn't the first one to use a drum machine. There oh, yes. Yeah. You know, Sly Stone used a drum machine throughout There's a Riot Going On, and uh, mm, Shuggy course, Otis yeah. used it, and uh, of course, Timmy Thomas. Mm. But but yeah. this is yeah. the first one that really hit big. Now what's good about
2: this though is that fabulous quick cutting between cameras that they do later on in the song.
1: Like they did with David Ansel a Collins. Double barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, it sort of lobs back a bit of the thrill that's been siphoned out mm. of this track, you know. And in fairness to George, he does that too because he really goes for it as wildly as he can to his credit. He's not discouraged. He's trying to make up for the the lost funk, you know. Mm.
1: And he's got the standard black male singer suit on, hasn't he? Just one of them zip-up all-in-one jobs with loads of spangles and whatnot on it.
2: Yeah, yeah. You can look at this performance one of two ways, right? Either it's the amazing... Very arguably one of the top ten singles of the 70s, Rock Your Baby by George Mm. McRae, being desecrated by Mm. hacks with George McRae right there to witness it. Like a a 17th century traitor having his entrails pulled (laughs) out and held up in front of his face before he dies. Or it's British light entertainment cracking down the sides as it attempts to accommodate the sumptuous girth of Rock Mm. Your Baby by George McRae. And what you're watching is the dead past being torn asunder because this, and not the record coming up next, this is now what ordinary people like. Yes. So really what we're seeing here is just one of the stranger artefacts of change at a point... Just before these old ways were banished to the echoing concrete corridors of the little and large show for 10 years mm. and then finally into the grave with that audience <laughs> you can look at it either way and, and neither of those two things is lovely listening but it's better to
1: think of it the second way because that's much nicer to witness we've talked often about this song in, in previous chart musics and uh, you know even in the last episode we talked about how this song influenced dancing queen and by extension don't make waves by the nolans but yeah. you know. But we can't hate it for that. No. Uh, but we can also kick in another song, which was Whatever Gets You Through the Night by John Lennon, which got to number one this yeah. year. And Lennon was quite open about nicking from it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this episode has properly picked right up now, hasn't mm.
2: it? And yeah, nothing can go yeah. wrong from here. <laughs> oh. It's
1: going from strength to strength to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Rocky Baby would spend three weeks as the toppermost of the poppermost, eventually yielding the floor to When Will I See You Again by the Three Degrees. The follow-up, I Can't Leave You Alone, got to number 9 for two weeks in October of this year, and his latest single, You Can Have It All, is currently at number 42 and will get to number 23 in January of 1975. He'd score one more big hit with It's Been So Long, which got to number 4 in August of 1975, then diminishing return setting, but he's still active today. Meanwhile, Gwen McRae scored moderate hits of her own in the late 70s with Funky Sensation and All This Love That I'm Giving, which in their own way are just as fucking monumental. I love those yeah. songs. All This Love That I'm Giving is a fucking banger. It is. Keep the Fire Burning. That's great. Mm. And on that note, Pop Craze Youngsters, we're going to step back, catch us breaths and come back hard tomorrow for part three of Chart Music number 69. Always remember, if you're sick of being edged by us and you want it long and hard in one big go without any rubbish adverts... Patreon.com slash chartmusic, money down the G-string. All right, and Pop Crazed youngsters, on behalf of Taylor Parks and David Stubbs, this is Al Needham, and you are staying Pop Crazed. Chart music.